Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the uh, LSE. For those of you who are from outside the school, um, I'm Howard Davis, the director of the school, and I'm delighted to welcome both uh, Andrew Mitchell, Secretary of State for International Development, uh, and Paul Collier, who is the co-director of the International Growth Centre here at the school, and who is also a professor of economics at... Um, Oh, Ox Oxford. Sorry, that's it. <laughs> I always forget that one. But um, uh, particularly pleased to welcome Andrew Mitchell here uh, this evening. We greatly value our links with uh, DFID here because, um, in particular, well, there's a lot of people in the school who are interested in international development, but particularly in the last 18 months since they have been funding the International Growth Centre here at the school, which has a very close relationship with the department, attempting to use an academic network, both in this country and overseas, to inform the decisions which the department makes on its aid program and its support in individual developing countries. Andrew and I um, go way back, as they say, um, known each other for a very long time, and in um, the summer of 2005, when he was appointed to be Shadow Development Secretary, he called me up and said, I've just been given this job, and could I come in to the LSE and talk to some of your academics and uh, brief myself? And so I said, of course, and I called the, head of, the then head of our uh, development, Destin, as it was then called, uh, and I said, look, I know this is going to be a complete bloody waste of time, but please could you um, <laughs> agree... Uh, because, of course, people who are appointed to be shadows almost never actually become uh, the real thing. Uh, so, you know, you're doing this out of the goodness of your heart. But amazingly, um, five years later, uh, this uh, modest intellectual investment by the LSE um, <laughs> turned out to pay dividends. Um, so it, just to show that some of the things you do that you think are completely useless at the time may turn out... Um, <laughs> may turn out to be rather valuable uh, because Andrew has uh, stuck with this uh, brief in an extraordinary way. Uh, I went to Rwanda uh, a couple of years ago for the school when we did a conference there on climate change in East Africa with President Kagame um, and all he could talk about was how the Conservatives under, uh, with Andrew in the lead were running projects there, social action projects in, in Rwanda. And he has really uh, shown an enormous commitment to this brief during the time he has had it both as a shadow and now, of course, in government. So this is a rare example um, of a round peg in a round hole. Uh, so we are delighted to have you here, and we look forward to what you have to say on wealth creation in developing countries. What's going to happen is Andrew's going to speak to us, Paul will comment, and then I hope that we'll have time for a few questions before we wind up at about eight o'clock. Andrew, welcome to the school. Well, thank you, Howard, uh, very much for that, uh, I think, kind introduction. And um, thank you, for Paul, for coming here tonight. And thank you to the International Growth Centre for hosting uh, this event. It's a particular pleasure to speak here this evening 
at the London School of Economics, uh, who yesterday added another Nobel Prize to their impressive existing uh, collection, and is an institution whose list of alumni reads like the edited highlights of who, Who's Who. It was one of the LSE's own founders, George Bernard Shaw, who once described poverty as the greatest of evils and the worst of crimes. A hundred years on, I believe that just as we look back with disbelief at the social poverty of Shaw's Britain, so future generations may yet judge us equally harshly as passive colluders in global poverty. This government is not prepared to accept such a shameful distinction. That's why at the United Nations summit last month, the Deputy Prime Minister led the way in calling for reinvigorated action across all the Millennium Development Goals and announced that Britain will, by 2015, save the lives of at least 50,000 women and a quarter of a million newborn babies. We will do everything in our power, use every policy tool at our disposal, bang every head together, if necessary, in our determination to make life better for the world's poorest. Just a month ago, I spent an unforgettable night in the Azanet Berbera district of Ethiopia, 200 kilometers southwest of Addis Ababa. I wanted to see what conditions were like for the millions of Ethiopians living on less than a dollar a day. The family I stayed with were very poor. There were 14 of us in the hut that night, not counting the livestock. But that family had access to the four key Millennium Goals. Within the last two years, they had secured access to clean water, sanitation, and basic health care. Six of the eight children are in school just 10 minutes away, not least due to the good work of ActionAid. But they remain grindingly poor. Each child has only the clothes in which they stand. The battle to secure enough food is fought every day of the year. So looking at those children whose life chances contrast so dramatically with my own, I ask myself how their generation can exit from such grinding poverty. And I suggest tonight that there are perhaps two key points. The first is without question their access to education. And the second, as the farmer just up the road has realized, if he can join together with others to market the beans he grows, then he can access that golden thread of wealth creation that is a universal instinct. That story, that instinct, is what this speech tonight is all about. Our generations, perhaps for the first time ever, have the huge opportunity to help people to move beyond mere survival to a place where people and economies can grow where the private sector can unleash its immense development potential, where individuals can create their own wealth, and where countries can begin to rely on their own economies and not on the checks or the charity of others. I do not underestimate the enormity of our task, despite the progress that has been made since the Millennium Development Goals were set 10 years ago. We are a long way from eradicating poverty. The figures, alas, speak for themselves. 70 million children cannot go to school. Almost 900 million people lack access to clean water. Nearly 1,000 women die every day in childbirth or from pregnancy-related causes. And more than 8 million children will never live to see their fifth birthday. No one can listen to those statistics and feel comfortable. We all know there is no single answer to this. It is essential that we work ceaselessly towards achieving the Millennium Goals. 
But what we also know is that economic district of Ethiopia, that uh, economic uh, growth, contributes to development and that the private sector can be the engine of that growth. Done right, it promotes new jobs, new opportunities, new markets, new prosperity, the sinews of wealth creation. As even the former Prime Minister said recently in Kampala, the job of aid is to kick-start business-led growth and not to replace it. So I've come to this great university tonight to make three points. The first is that it is wealth creation, jobs and livelihoods above all, which will help poor people to lift themselves out of poverty. Aid is a means to an end, not an end in itself. Secondly, that we will bring a new energy to Britain's promotion of wealth creation in development and reconfigure within my department to meet this challenge. And thirdly, that we will reposition CDC so that it discovers its development mission and acts as an engine through which the British taxpayer supports inclusive investment in some of the poorest places in the world. So let me begin by underlining the case for sustainable growth. It's easy to forget that poverty has been the natural state of humankind for thousands of years. It was only when the Industrial Revolution kick-started our manufacturing economy a couple of hundred years ago that Britain really accelerated its way out of poverty. The same pattern is evident in the history of all developed countries. The starting point might be different, but the journey has been the same. Even America was poor once. The power of economic growth and the importance of the path taken is incontrovertible. Compare South Korea and Zambia. In 1960, South Korea had a GDP per capita only twice that of Zambia. By 2009, as a direct result of their different growth paths and policies, South Korea's per capita income was nearly 40 times higher than Zambia's, while the rate of children dying before their fifth birthday was five per thousand compared to Zambia's 141. And look at China, where during the period of nearly 10% growth per annum between 1990 and 2005, 475 million people were lifted out of poverty. Economic growth isn't just an abstract process of statistics and percentage points. Behind that slightly arcane language lie families and communities. For every extra percentage point of growth, more schools can be built, more health facilities developed, and more safe drinking water supplied. So if you're in the business of helping reduce poverty, you have to believe in economic development and growth, growth that is broad-based, inclusive and sustainable, in which all people benefit from the proceeds of prosperity, and in which even the poorest have access to the opportunities and markets that it creates. What is our role? There is no magic growth cocktail. As Michael Spence said after chairing the Growth Commission, there is no recipe for growth, only ingredients. And we have to be humble. Politicians and bureaucrats don't have a good track record at trying to pick winners or engineer growth. History is littered with the failures of those who have tried. But we always remember this. No country has grown on a sustained basis in recent times without successfully integrating itself into global markets. For a country to grow, it has to be part of the global goods and services market, and it must also be able to access global capital. And it is the private sector that holds the key to that integration. 
If the private sector is going to deliver its full development potential in this regard, then countries need to get the climate right for both domestic and foreign investment. So through our development work, we will help to build prudent macroeconomic policies, including monetary and fiscal policies, that support growth, low inflation, and sustainable finances. And we will support developing countries as they identify and attempt to tackle the barriers to growth. This might mean helping them to build the legal infrastructure through which property rights and contractual agreements can be enforced and investors are sure that they will be treated fairly in all circumstances. Or it might mean developing the physical infrastructure by which supplies and goods can be transported, the communications infrastructure through which information can be disseminated, or the financial infrastructure through which credit can freely flow. Ultimately, domestic investors are just as important, if not more so, than any amount of foreign direct investment. If the private sector is to be the real engine of growth in a developing country and the business leaders of tomorrow are going to emerge and lead the way, we must work with developing country governments to get some pr critical prerequisites in place. One, a competitive environment, a level playing field for all investors to enter the marketplace without vested interests and other barriers thwarting fair market competition. Two, reduced barriers to market entry and to cross-border trade, which exist everywhere, but are especially high in Africa. Three, an appropriate regulatory framework. Developing countries have, in many cases, made good progress on improving business regulation. Last year, out of 183 countries ranked by the World Bank for the ease and cost of doing uh, business, Rwanda, which Howard just mentioned, rose from 143rd place to 67th. This meteoric rise has been achieved with their government's leadership and donor support. And thinking back to what it all means for individuals' lives, in Afghanistan, for example, an entrepreneur in Kabul who wants to set up a business today no longer has to spend three months doing it, as they did five years ago. It could be done by this time next week. Throughout all of this, of course, we must never forsake the local consumer, the local workforce, and the local environment. Growth that simply squanders today's assets at the cost of tomorrow's is not growth in the true sense of the word. Future generations matter too. The importance of sustainable growth cannot be overstated, and I shall refer, return to this theme at greater length next month when I speak on the subject of development and climate change. But let me say this, over-farmed land, over-mined resources, and over-depleted water supplies may yield benefits now but will drive even deeper poverty in years to come. The responsible exploitation of non-renewable mineral and petroleum resources is a case in point and is a topic that Paul explored in his excellent book, The Plundered Planet. This should be required reading for all governments. If countries are to invest in the responsible <laughs> exploitation of non-renewable resources, it is essential that they have in place a solid policy and regulatory framework to safeguard profits, collect taxes, regulate investors, ensure transparency, and protect uh, the environment. Throughout all of this, the UK will lead by example. Where British businesses invest and operate in developing countries, UK membership of the OECD and our own beliefs and expectations 
require that they do so in a manner that is socially responsible, environmentally sound, and legally compliant. This government strongly supports the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative and the OEC guidelines on multinational enterprises. And let me be clear, this government has a zero-tolerance approach to corruption. The new Bribery Act passed earlier this year puts beyond doubt the fact that bribery of foreign officials and office holders by UK nationals constitutes corruption and makes it punishable as such through the British courts. Why it took the last government so many years to put such vital legislation to Parliament when the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention was ratified as long ago as 1998, I don't know. But there is no question that this government supports it 100%. I move now to my second key point tonight. It is my intention to recast it as a government department that understands the private sector that has at its disposal the right tools to deliver and that is equipped to support a vibrant, resilient and growing business sector in the poorest countries. To do this, we will need to add new types of people with different skills. I want to preface my comments by recognising that it is the state that must guarantee access for all to basic services such as education, healthcare, that are vital for quality of life and that represent a safety net for the most vulnerable. And it is the state that must get the enabling environment right for investment and growth. But when it comes to wealth creation, it is the private sector that must take the lead in creating jobs and opportunities. And let me be clear about the lazy thinking that equates the private sector with some kind of ideological promotion of privatisation. We will support what works and we will be completely non-ideological about it. That's why at the UN summit last month I joined 10 other development ministers in endorsing a commitment to strengthen our work with the private sector and in promising to create a new private sector department within DFID, I have sent, I hope, the clearest of signals that I believe business has a vital role to play. This is the stuff of real change. There is already a genuine sense of excitement within DFID about what this new approach can achieve. I want this department to be the place that defines, lives and breathes the new DFID culture of private sector-led development, an example for other development bodies to follow. I want DFID to learn from business. I want to explore how we might enrich DFID's own talent pool with a series of short-term secondments from the private sector in order to inject new business-savvy DNA into the department. I also want the new department to bring together representatives from business in ad hoc, time-limited groups, being bold and finding creative solutions to development challenges. That, after all, is what business does so very well. Let me give you just a few examples of the sort of creativity that private sector companies in their core business have already shown. In India, the health company Lifespring plans to provide quality anti- and postnatal care for 82,000 women at some 30 to 50% of the market rate through specialization in maternal health care, optimal use of resources, and cost sharing of ambulances, laboratories, and pharmacies. In doing this, it will also help to build capacity in the health system by employing more than 4,000 doctors, nurses, and outreach workers. Then there is Unilever, which has equipped more than 25,000 women known as Shakti entrepreneurs in India and Bangladesh 
to sell products such as toothpaste or tea to people living in hard-to-reach areas, in turn allowing them to afford health care for their families and schooling for their children. And Thomson Reuters, which has developed a text messaging service that provides up to a quarter of a million Indian farmers with access to information that will improve yields and increase incomes across the agricultural industry. These businesses are prime examples of innovation in action and exactly the sort of thing the new private sector department will champion. We want to do more work with companies like this. There are already some exciting examples of collaboration between DFID and businesses which have led to the harnessing of technology and business innovation for development goals. Advanced market commitments have helped incentivize investment by major pharmaceutical firms who might otherwise have stayed clear from costly research and development on products much needed in the developing world. By working with the Gates Foundation and others, DFID has helped to create an international market for a vaccine against pneumococcal diseases amongst the biggest child killers in the developing world. And let us consider the massive success of M-Pesa, the result of a collaboration which saw DFID seed funding some early product development by Vodafone. Thanks to this partnership, a simple but game-changing product, a mobile phone-based money transfer service, has succeeded in allowing millions of the country's very poorest people to engage in the economy in ways they have never done before. The number of Kenyan adults with access to financial services rocketed by nearly 10 million in just three years. Now, building on this success, Vodafone and the local equity bank have launched Mkesha, a facility that is helping people to open savings accounts for the first time in their lives. This has inspired similar initiatives with nearly 70 mobile money platforms across the world. And the M-Pesa platform is now being used to pay policemen in Afghanistan, something so small, transforming lives on a massive scale. And whether in microfinance, branchless banking, solar energy or biogas, the private sector can be the touchstone for other equally exciting and revolutionary innovations. What will be tomorrow's M-Pesa? It would be remiss of me to talk about the private sector innovation without making the point that a successful conclusion to the Doha round of trade talks could transform the economic landscape of the very countries we are all trying to help. We must not lose sight of the fact that Doha was always intended to be a development round and, if successful, could bring gains for poor countries which amount to three times the volume of global aid. Indeed, I hope you will agree that this government is earning itself something of a reputation as a passionate advocate of free and fair trade. The Prime Minister spoke out forcefully at the G20 in Toronto and will reinforce this point at next month's G20 meeting in Seoul, including the need for G20 countries to do more for the least developed. This government has consistently pushed in Europe for the extension of GSP plus privileges to Pakistan and will continue to do so. And following the devastating floods that hit that country in August, it was our Prime Minister who helped secure agreement for the EU to put in place an immediate reduction in tariffs on goods imported from Pakistan. This measure will provide Pakistan and its people with a vital window in which to rebuild its economy. And in Africa, where growth and poverty reduction prospects are constrained because of the high costs of trading, we've helped to set up one-stop border posts and have promised 
to support the proposed Pan-African free trade area across the continent. It is also worth remembering that developing countries represent a huge market that richer economies can tap into, something described by the author and management guru C.K. Pralahad as the bottom of the pyramid. Open markets are a two-way street that can therefore benefit British businesses as well as bringing much-needed revenue, product choice, technology, services and cheaper goods to people in developing countries. I turn now, ladies and gentlemen, to the third and final issue I would like to address today, CDC. Founded in 1948 and formerly known as the Commonwealth Development Corporation, CDC is the government's development investment vehicle that, if we get it right, should be a vital ingredient in the work on wealth creation that I have discussed today. CDC has the potential to be the jewel in the crown of the UK's support to the private sector in developing countries, but it has lost its way. CDC has come on a journey in its first phase when its expertise was more developmentally than financially focused. Its record of achieving investment returns was at best uneven and its stewardship of public money sometimes seriously deficient. In its second phase, the balance has tipped too far the other way. If CEDC only does what the private financial sector can do, then what is its raison d'etre? The answer is that CDC needs to reinvigorate its development DNA, marrying this together with business know-how and financial discipline. Of course, profitability is important. It is CDC's profitability that has enabled it to keep investing hundreds of millions of pounds without receiving a penny of taxpayers' money since 1995. And CDC should look to invest in enterprises that can be profitable. It is only when businesses are profitable that they will be sustainable beyond aid and continue to generate incomes and jobs and taxes when development agencies have moved on. But CDC must rebalance. It must strive towards both development and financial gains. In its current configuration as a fund of funds, CDC has, in some ways, been a remarkable success. In terms of financial performance, we should applaud the achievement of turning £1 billion into £2.5 billion since 2004. In turning this profit, it has lately become the target of fierce criticism for enriching its executives and directing its investment activities at opportunities which were already financeable by the private sector. It is important to keep a sense of proportion in all of this. The fact that China, India and Africa can now attract private equity capital in ever-growing amounts should be a source of pleasure and vindication to all those who believe in the power of the private sector. Memories can be short when it comes to recalling how difficult and unlikely some of this seemed ten or even five years ago. And if some of CDC's investments have been directed at opportunities which could have attracted capital elsewhere, at least their success has given us a substantially enhanced pool of capital to direct at the smaller group of countries on which this very economic success now allows us to concentrate. Nevertheless, the stinging attacks directed at CDC are not without justification. In its current form, it was poorly conceived and was left largely undirected by government. It became less directly engaged in serving the needs of development. 
the last government announced its privatisation without understanding either the difficulty of executing such a strategy or its likely consequences. So when it was rebuffed by the markets, it resorted to the expedient of keeping the capital in public ownership whilst privatising the management. The consequences were inevitable. Using public capital, CDC pursued the narrowly defined private sector goals for which it was incentivised, and this meant the greatest return for the least risk. This was hardly likely to be consistent with concentrating its efforts in the regions of greatest development need, and it was not. Worse, the private equity fund of funds structure has sometimes locked it into the pursuit of investment opportunities where its capital is not needed. Not only is this a wasted opportunity, it is also a waste of spirit, of motivation, and of a 50-year tradition of public service motivated by the desire to do something good for others and to create a world-leading development institution of which the British people could be proud. It would be unfair of me to say that this old spirit of CDC has been lost entirely. It is still there in the halls of CDC, but it has been substantially weakened through the 100% reliance on outside fund managers. So the current approach needs a major overhaul. CDC should provide pound for pound the most effective development effort in the world. We have to understand where the money is going, know why we have chosen to invest it in that way, and have effective mechanisms to monitor whether it had the result we intended. We need to see a radical change in the way CDC operates, in the instruments it offers, and in its internal management structure. In my statement to the House of Commons this morning, I said that the government will reconfigure CDC. We will create a revitalised CDC with a great deal more clarity and ambition over what it does and where it works. Specifically, I should be proposing that CDC reduce new commitments to future third-party funds and consider the benefit of liquidating some of its existing investment where this can be done on attractive terms. I do not propose that we end commitments to new third-party funds, since they can be the most appropriate way to mobilise funding in some countries and for some <coughs> investment purposes. They can also be effective at mobilising third-party capital alongside ours, and I do not discount the value of the demonstration effect where they genuinely open new markets to private sector investment. But the fund of funds model should make up no more than a part of a new, broader and more actively managed portfolio. CDC should regain its power to make investments directly in target markets. I envisage that at least to start with this will be done through co-investment with other sources of capital, whereby doing so CDC could make possible desirable investments which could not otherwise be made. Its criteria for such investments in terms of geography, sector or purpose could be published and investors in qualifying projects could approach CDC for support. Such investors might be private equity investors, possibly but not necessarily those with whom CDC is already invested, struggling to find capital for a desirable qualifying project. They could also be local investors, the World Bank's International Finance Corporation, or other development agencies. It is too big a step to move in one go from where we are now to a fully-fledged investment operation, managing investments on its own. But I want CDC to start down the road to making its own investment decisions. 
In addition to regaining some investment control, CDC should be encouraged to participate through a wider range of vehicles. I should like it to be able to invest in debt instruments and provide guarantees. Greater flexibility will enable it to build a more diversified portfolio in terms of risk, maturity and liquidity. Debt instruments and guarantees as part of its offering could make it a more flexible and useful partner to the providers of equity for appropriate projects in the poorest parts of the world. I should like CDC to develop a more active approach to portfolio management. Its purpose is to invest in targeted countries or sectors where capital is otherwise not available, to provide patient capital to finance and kickstart private investment in the most difficult regions, not the most immediately desirable. There is no reason why it should stay around when other capital has become available. CDC has received much criticism for finding itself invested in projects and places for which abundant private sector capital is now available. This is partly the result of its 100% commitment to an inflexible private equity fund of funds model. But to be fair, it is partly a result of the success of that very model. Where success has been achieved, however, we need at least to try to find liquidity for our investments so that the capital can be recycled much more quickly to new targets. I should also like CDC to develop more financial firepower. The illiquidity of its investments and its considerable uncalled commitments to existing funds mean that it will take a long time to free up capital for more active and direct investment. I would therefore like CDC to regain its power to borrow. This must be constrained within prudent limits, but the ability to do so will give us the power to move more quickly and more effectively. And in all it does, I shall continue to expect CDC to show that it is improving the way in which firms in the poorest countries operate and that CDC monitors and demands improvements in the conditions under which people work. I also expect CDC to demand more effective treatment of environmental issues, more transparency and a rigorous approach to corruption. Ladies and gentlemen, if we make these reforms... CDC will become a distinctive, innovative and differentiated development finance institution with clearly measurable development impact and additionality and a new commitment targeted throughout sub-Saharan Africa and the poorer parts of Asia. I want CDC to be more focused on the poorest countries than any other DFI doing the hardest things in the hardest places more investment in businesses which would never otherwise have been considered, more capital unlocked to boost the potential of hundreds of new enterprises employing thousands of people and paying their fair share of revenues to their local exchequers. Economic development stimulated and communities empowered. The prize is great indeed. Now there are some in this audience, I'm sure, who at this stage will expect me to identify today those sectors where I want CDC to focus in the future. This is a complex area. Infrastructure and energy are at the top of my list. That family I stayed with in Ethiopia, how much better their lives and their local economy would be if there were a better road network to link their products to markets and electricity allowing them to be productive throughout the day and those long hours of darkness. But I want to listen to a range of views before taking any decisions. The correlation between investment and poverty reduction is not straightforward. So, from NGOs to business, 
From Oxfam to Lazard, we welcome your views. Views on which sectors CDC should focus in order to generate the highest wealth creation impact for the poor. I have asked CDC and DFID to commission independent studies, the findings of which will be made public through DFID's website. The department will also be launching a consultation, outline details of which will be available online tomorrow. I will listen and then make further announcements early next year. CDC will reflect the necessary changes in the business plan which they will publish in the spring. Regaining power over the investment of capital needs to be staged carefully and will need resources of human capital addition to, additional to the often highly committed and dedicated people working at CDC at the moment. I want people to be proud of working for CDC, to see it as a badge of honour. I want CDC to regain its identity, its spirit and its energy, to rediscover its developmental DNA. I want it to inspire at home and abroad as our repository of knowledge of how to make development investing work. CDC must attract people of the highest calibre, people who are passionate about development investment and whose expertise is rewarded by remuneration that is fair and appropriate but not excessive. So as part of the period of consultation, I will consult on what that remuneration structure should be. Let me be clear about this. I do believe that there is a willingness on the part of many qualified people to come and engage in such a vital and exciting enterprise without the need for excessive financial incentives. I want to appeal to people who are motivated by something other than money, something that our generations for the first time have the ability to do, to drive sustainable growth and development and help people lift themselves out of poverty. They may be young, brilliant and determined to save the world, or they may be older and experienced, successful and less interested in their own financial reward, seeking instead to leave their footprints in the sand of a truly noble endeavour. We intend to set about the business of mobilising such people and supporting them in every way we can to build an enterprise and a success of which Britain can be proud. Ladies and gentlemen, I have set out this evening my vision for a world where development is embedded through inclusive economic growth, where wealth creation is the route out of poverty and where the private sector is the catalyst. I want to say to you publicly, the young generation, the leaders of British business, that you have an incredibly important role to play in combating global poverty. We are all in this together, and I look forward to working with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Andrew, I'm going to hand straight over to Paul. The International Growth Centre is a joint venture between the LSE and Oxford, so we're happy to have the Oxford end to speak to us this evening. Thank you. Um, development and the world's poor have been used for gesture politics by the West politicians again and again. I got so upset by that, that's, that's what motivated me to, to write The Bottom Billion. Is this another example of gesture politics? No. Whatever it is, 
This is an important speech. It's important because embedded in it are very important decisions. Policies will change as a result of this speech. Important policies will change. So the issue is not, is this gesture politics yet again? It certainly isn't. The issue is, are the policy changes for better or for worse? And that's what I'm going to address tonight. And let me start with what is fresh in your mind, CDC. Right? I think a CDC or CDB could do better. Right? Um, indeed, uh, the idea of public money invested in a fund of funds by private managers instructed to maximize the rate of returns, uh, it is not beyond the wit of man to think of uh, a radically better form for CDC. Right? So the question is whether the Secretary of State had come up with a better form. Um, I think he has. Um, first, he's opening the door to strategic investments. Strategic investments can gear up um, private sector, a future private sector investment. Uh, this is really important, and it was a shocking thing when CDC walked away from that. CDC didn't do strategic investments because it, was, it wasn't competent. It hadn't got the right staffing, but the concept of strategic investments is manifestly there. Uh, secondly, um, the Secretary of State suggests that uh, CDC could be used for guarantees. And this is, I think, a hugely important opportunity. Um, governor Bernanke, before he became governor of the Federal Reserve, um, was, a, was, a, was a celebrated economist at Princeton, and, and he's most celebrated of all for a, a, a thing called the bad news principle, which is an analysis of what determines whether potential investors wait rather than committing to invest. And his, his key point is that um, uh, it's not it, improving the upside doesn't cut the ice. The bad news principle shows that what really matters for moving from, a, a, from withholding commitment to actually committing investment is addressing the big downside risks. Now in Africa, where I work on, it's just full of big downside risks. We've now got to the point where the private investors and a lot of private investment portfolios have been consulting me in the last few months. They're well aware that they need to shift portfolio to Africa. And they're well aware that there are big downside risks that they don't understand. And so at the moment, there's a standoff. What can be done for those big downside risks? A joint effort in which African governments try to address some, try to reduce some of those downside risks. What are the risks? The big risks are concerns about the future behavior of African governments. And so by building what, what economists call commitment technologies, African governments that are serious about attracting investment can reduce those risks. They can't eliminate them because they themselves have credibility problems. They just don't have access to really credible commitment technologies. But to the extent that they make the move and try to reduce risks in a credible fashion, then some sort of guarantees that cut off that tail of risk can be very highly geared with private investment. So opening the door 
to, to guarantees for private investors is a very big step. This can really gear up the, the investment flows. Power to borrow, absolutely. Not only does this very obviously gear up CDC's resources, it's also a discipline. Because the, the credit rating on CDC borrowing will show whether the market thinks CDC is putting its money wisely or foolishly. And so, yes, CDC should borrow, and the temperature of the quality of its investment will be revealed by, its, uh, by, by, the, by the, the interest rate it pays. Finally, sainthood. Should we demand sainthood of CDC managers? No. Um, can we demand something more of them than what we've actually expected of them? Decidedly, yes. Right? Um, it is frankly offensive um, to pay people in the development business at uh, par, a parity with market rates in the, uh, in the financial sector, especially now that we're all concerned that remuneration rates in the financial sector are, are excessive. Um, it, nor is it remotely necessary. Let me give you just one very simple manifestation of the fact that people working in the financial sector want to have periods in their lives when they're actually doing something that is ethically manifestly worthwhile, even if that costs them money. Um, J.P. Morgan, with whom I partner uh, in running a, an annual workshop for African Central Bankers, J.P. Morgan um, set up in their London office a little unit for social enterprise. It was very small. Um, they decided they'd create four posts. And of course, you know, the, working in the social enterprise unit wasn't going to attract the, the mega bonuses. Um, so they, 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 they advertised just internally within J.P. Morgan could they fill these four posts. They got a thousand applications from within J.P. Morgan for those four posts. There's a tidal wave of people with the skills wanting to do something ethically more responsible with their lives. So they don't need to demand sainthood, but we can demand more than we have been demanding. So much for CDC. Let me turn to Andrew's second concern, which is uh, opening markets, opening opportunities. And one of the things you mentioned there was, was, was trade, and of course uh, we, should, we should press for, for open trade. Uh, trade has been the, the engine of poverty reduction, but, there's a but, um, just as CDC should be in the business of pump priming private enterprise in the poorest countries, so our trade strategies our freeing up of markets should contain an element of pump priming for the poorest. And frankly, Doha doesn't. The, these fancy computable general equilibrium models, which incidentally nobody believes, um, do show up these huge hundreds and hundreds of millions, billions of trade gains. Um, the countries that get them are not the poorest. Right? They're basically the emerging market economies. That's worth doing, don't get me wrong, but we need a separate strategy for shoehorning in to global markets the countries at the bottom. 
And for that, we've got a trade policy that would work. It's privileged market access in our markets for the poorest countries. And in particular, the, 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 the area where that is realistic and effective is in textiles markets, where trade restrictions still matter. The poorest, the countries that haven't yet broken into the textiles market, that's the entry point for labor-intensive manufacturing, should be given privileged market access by Europe and America. You know, America already does it with the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. Europe did it with something called Everything But Arms, which might as well have been called Everything But Garments, because the details just didn't work. Right? The devil with trade policy is in the details, and Europe got it wrong. Yeah. Hard as that is to believe. Um, so here's an opportunity for the G20 to get a not, not a scheme for Europe, a scheme for America, a scheme for Canada, a scheme for Australia. Let's have one scheme of privileged market access for the poorest countries, the countries that have yet to break in to garments. Um, AGOA worked, um, and we've just had a very recent demonstration of it because faced with the enormity of the tragedy in Haiti, um, the, American government, the American Congress pa has very recently passed um, uh, an equivalent of, of a goer for, uh, for Haiti. And straight away, uh, a Korean garments firm, the biggest private garments firm in Korea, has committed to creating 20,000 jobs in, Korea, in, in Haiti. So these privileged market access schemes, if you get the details right, are very high power. If you can get a Korean company to go to Haiti, you can certainly get it to go to a lot of the, the, the countries in Africa. Let me move from opening markets to managing the downside of the private sector. The private sector is as good as the incentive regime and regulation that you provide. Um, and uh, I'm very heartened to hear the Secretary of State's commitment uh, against bribery, those were strong and appropriate words. He was also quite right to say that the, the, the British record since 1998 has been, frankly, pitiful. Um, not only did we fail to pass this legislation, um, we failed to prosecute even under the legislation we have. For 12 years we had the legislation, 10 years we had the legislation, we only brought one prosecution under the Serious Fraud Office. That was about the worst record within the OECD. I know about that case because I was the expert witness called in by the Serious Fraud Office. And the only reason that case came to the Serious Fraud Office was the management of the company changed and the new management discovered what the old management had been up to and decided it didn't want to be liable. And so it went to the Serious Fraud Office and said, please prosecutors, we'll plead guilty. <laughs> and they did. Um, we can do better than that. Right? Um, specifically, the Americans, to their credit, have just, in July, um, tacked on to their Financial Reform Act an amendment called the Cardin-Lugar Amendment, uh, which is a very exciting amendment. It requires that all the companies listed on the New York Stock Exchange, all the resource extraction companies, have to report in detail all their payments. And so suddenly, since July, bribery has, in any of its forms, even the subtle forms, has become a whole lot more difficult for companies quoted on the New York Stock Exchange. 
All the big British companies already are. But there are a lot of companies out there that are not on the New York Stock Exchange. In Britain, there are some um, rather companies at the margin quoted on uh, the AIM market um, that uh, might well benefit from that sort of legislation. Um, in Toronto, which is the home of the big, um, that's the big market for the, for the cowboy resource extraction companies, uh, Toronto would certainly, Canada would certainly benefit from that sort of regulation. It's not just America. Hong Kong, believe it or not, has already got very tough legislation on the disclosure of all the resource extraction companies quoted on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Hong Kong, New York, let's take it global. Let's make this a British issue for the G20. Finally, let me turn to, uh, to where you started. So the reforms uh, within DFID. Um, you're establishing a private sector department within DFID. Um, DFID is already good. It's already by far the best bilateral development agency. It's better than some of the multilaterals. Um, is this action appropriate? Um, it is. Um, let me uh, tell you a little anecdote of uh, five years ago, I went to a DFID management retreat, and I, it was in Brighton. I turned up late at night at the hotel and, uh, and checked in late. It was just the, the hotel night porter there. And so the hotel night porter, in checking me in, said, um, do you want a newspaper next morning, sir? So I said, yeah, yes, please, and I have the Financial Times. And, and, and then he blinked at me, and he said, who on earth are all the people staying at this hotel? Every single one of them has ordered the Guardian. <laughs> it's time to change the culture. Don't just... <laughs> and don't just change it in the private sector department. Right? It needs to be across DFID. Right? Uh, in particular, and, and this is where the, the rubber really hits the road, um, the most important areas that DFID are working on now are the fragile states. And for DFID, the business model for, for many years, though it is changing, the business model for many years was let's try and make these fragile states look like Denmark. Yeah? That was in fact the working model across a lot of development agencies. Let's build an effective state in the model of Denmark, the ministry of this doing this, the ministry of that doing that, all the way top to bottom. Right? Doesn't work, doesn't work. We need a plan B. Now what is plan B? Plan B is to pull into the public delivery system much more than just the government ministries. Sir, uh, it's not just Britain that needs the big society the poorest countries need the big society even more. Pull in not just the private sector, but the non-government sector in service delivery. So, let me draw to a conclusion. Undoubtedly, what the Secretary of State said is important. These are important policy decisions. I started by saying the issue is, is it for better or for worse? It's decidedly for the better. Thank you very much.
we've got time, thank you Paul, for one or two questions before the football starts. So um, you, you have, however, Paul, in recommending that they should all read the FT, doubled the newspaper bill for DFID at a stroke, <laughs> not something which will be welcomed in the context of the uh, comprehensive spending review. Um, but let me take questions. Yeah, there's one over there. If you could, microphones. Yeah, guy in a blue sweater. First, if you could give your name as you ask. Should we take two or three, uh, Andrew? Yeah. Uh, my name is Brendan Martin. Um, firstly, may I say the uh, news you've brought us about CDC made me start wondering about what would have happened if Douglas Alexander or Hillary Benn had made the same decisions. Seems to me they'd probably have been chided for being far too socialist. Uh, and it was a very interesting thing to hear you say. But my question is this. You used the interesting phrase free and fair trade, which alliterates very nicely. But I wonder in the context of that phrase what fair means. Thank you. We're directly behind, yeah. Uh, hello, Anthony Barnett from Channel 4. Um, I just wanted to ask the Development Secretary um, what is his view of the way, the damage that offshore tax havens can do to developing countries? Thank you. And a woman right at the back there, yeah. Can you bounce up? Thanks. I'm a former consultant to DFID on their Drivers of Change strategy in Nigeria, which is about their pro-poor reforms, and a former consultant to USAID on public-private sector alliances, as well as a former poor student at LSE. And I recently went to South Africa to help communities launch their own initiatives. And what people said they needed was a way to penetrate the divide with the outside world in terms of knowledge, networks, finance and support and came back to East London to work with Somali and Bangladeshi immigrant populations in Tower Hamlets. The belief is that knowledge networks, finance and support already exist among the government, business, civil society and community sectors but need to be more effectively networked and made accessible in a public domain. Is that something that DFID would be willing to explore? Thank you. Um, well, in, in terms of Brendan's uh, question, the hard um, point which we need to um, be, be clear about is whether or not Labour ministers understood what they were doing when they sought to transform CDC from what I described in my speech into the new vehicle, whether they gripped it during the course of their times as uh, ministers and whether the destination which CDC has now uh, reached was the destination that was originally intended. I don't believe that it was. And I think that the most important uh, thing we can do now is to uh, correct a process which has gone far too far. It started off uh, seeking to address um, a development uh, fund finance institution that was not uh, performing in a financially credible or respectable way. And it's gone far too far. It's lost all that development DNA. So I think in, in, uh, in considering your, your question, the first part of your question, you need to uh, consider whether ministers knew precisely what they were creating and were masters of the change that took place. 
In, in terms of free and fair trade, I think it is important. We're all free traders now. Um, Claire Short, when she was uh, the, my predecessor, um, embraced uh, the tenets of free trade absolutely because she realized in doing this job how important free trade is. But equally, uh, we want to ensure that there is uh, fair trade. For example, the GSP Plus um, that we've been arguing for for Pakistan, which has not yet been been uh, uh, secured, the changes to the, um, the uh, trading arrangements, the WTO for Pakistan, these are very significant factors and they are trade advantages. So that's why I include FAIR with free and fair trade. I think they both go together um, seamlessly, really. Um, in terms of the question from the uh, chat from Channel 4, uh, asking me what damage I think offshore tax havens do to developing countries. There is a sort of irony here that, that there are some countries, developing countries, which are tax havens who if they lose that status will then have to find another way of making their income. But I leave that on one side. I believe that everyone should uh, pay their taxes. I think it's extremely important that people should not be able to squirrel their taxes away in tax havens. We are in favour of transparency. The, Transparency Guarantee, which the coalition government published, um, uh, is the second most popular policy, apparently, of the coalition uh, government. Um, and uh, as I say, we believe that there should be transparency, and we're watching the effects of um, various changes that have been made uh, by other countries with great interest in that respect. On the final question, I'm not absolutely certain I fully understand the question, so I apologise if it's not a, a totally... Uh, adequate answer. I think there are barriers, some of which I described in my uh, speech, to societies developing successful local economies. I, I think also there are things we can do to try and boost and beef up civil society so that it more effectively tries to hold to account its uh, political leaders in developing countries. And both of those two things we will seek to champion. Thank you. Um, one down here. Yep. And then I've got you. Graham Baxter, International Business Leaders Forum. Secretary of State, thank you for your ringing endorsement of the private sector. We've been trying to put business at the heart of sustainable development for 20 years, so it's great to hear you're on our side. Thank you, too, for mentioning LifeSpring, that amazing maternity hospital in India, sprung off, as it was, from a, a contraceptives business to uh, go to the other end of uh, maternal health. A wonderful example, which was featured in New York, uh, and which received the World Business Development Award, among others. A product uh, to come forward through Business Call to Action, uh, a marvellous example of collaboration between uh, donor communities, DFID included and UNDP, and private enterprise. My point is there have been, despite Professor Collier's comments regarding DFID's past, some excellent examples of good collaboration between your department and the private sector. And I hope as the PSD is formed, you will be able to commit to build on those excellent examples of collaboration because there are distinctive roles for the private sector in creating economic growth, but very critically important roles for government and donor communities to play their part also. And we hope that you'll stay at the party. Thank you. Uh, woman down the front, uh, front row here, White. Hi, I'm Anna Rosenberg from African Business Magazine. Thank you for that interesting presentation. I had a question. You were um, speaking about specific sectors you wanted to focus on. I'd like to know if you also have specific countries in mind when you speak about developing countries. 
Thank you. So there was one uh, there, yes, a man with, uh, I don't really know what colour that is, that shirt. Sort of pew. No, 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 down here. Puce, perhaps. Thank you very much. Andrew, um, the question from the man in Puce is uh, from a, a director of a, a British company uh, called Two Degrees, proudly British. And uh, Paul, for your benefit, it's based in Oxford. And uh, we have uh, an online community of practice of 9,000 individuals who are dedicated to uh, creating opportunity in climate change for themselves and for others and are at the moment very interested in the emerging markets. And I wonder if you would care to listen to us uh, as a segue between today's event and your next discussion of climate change uh, when we can present some of the uh, members of the community of practice to you. Uh, we have uh, companies such as Cisco, um, Nokia Siemens Network, uh, we have uh, a number of uh, technology and other companies who are all involved in uh, trying to get sustainable development into these emerging markets. Um, it's really just an opportunity now, I hope, for us to uh, talk to you about what the World Bank has been funding us to do to help these companies talk to those markets, not just in the OECD, uh, but those where it traditionally has been difficult for them to understand where the drivers are for opportunity for them. So thank you for thank you. any comments you might have. That was a kind of a yes-no question, so I'm going to, we'll take you at the back there. I sort of grabbed the microphone from your hand, so we'll take, we'll take you as the last of this round. Uh, thank you. I'm Mira Sabaratnam. I'm a PhD student in the International Relations Department and I work on Mozambique and uh, intervention and development there. Uh, one of the first things we learn about poverty when we, when we study it is that it's a relative concept and not an absolute one. What matters about the dollar a day is what you can buy with it, your relative purchasing power in society. Uh, none of the policies that you've talked about talk about redistributing income either within or between countries in any substantive way. How can a policy to reduce poverty work without addressing inequalities? Thank you. Um, well, let me just pick um, those um, at random. First of all, the man in Puce, I take that's an offer to draft the, the uh, first draft of my next speech, and I'd be very grateful to receive it. <laughs> Save my officials a great deal of work, and uh, anything you have to say to contribute to the uh, pot of our wisdom will be gratefully received. Um, in terms of the final question, I mean, poverty is relative. That was the point of my story about the night I spent um, in uh, uh, this, this uh, tukul in Ethiopia with this very poor family, because I have been encapsulating for the last uh, five years while I've been shadowing this job, the aim of the Millennium Development Goals to get clean water, sanitation, basic education and basic health care to the people at the end of the track in our world who don't have it. And the, 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 the point that was rammed home to me that night was that this family had all four of those key basic ingredients and yet remained grindingly poor. And uh, it, they, they got all four of those ingredients within the last two years. Um, and that's why I make the point that uh, that gets you to the starting line. In the end, what are the two ingredients um, as I set out at the beginning of my speech, that will help people. One, it is education, undoubtedly, and particularly educating girls in our world today. 
and the other is access to wealth creation, jobs. This is what helps people to lift themselves out of poverty. So that is the focus rather than redistribution. That is the, that is the lesson from that story for me about the importance of wealth creation in lifting people out of poverty. On the African Business um, magazine uh, about the, the role of uh, companies as well as sectors um, in, in uh, what I was describing, I mean, yes, absolutely. We're, we're going to consult, we're going to listen to the advice people. I've put forward my own view that basically it is, it is energy, which one of the, is one of the key things that Bill Gates has made so, so clear in identifying it as one of the key interventions which gives people a chance to lift themselves off the bottom economically. Um, and also infrastructure, because in Africa you see it so incredibly important. Um, but uh, we're consulting. Send us your views. We'll be very interested to, to hear them. Um, then uh, the next one was uh, Graham, uh, who um, uh, I think was basically supportive of the direction in which we're, we're going. Um, on, on the point you make about the various uh, interventions, which are, are our passion, really. I mean, maternal mortality, which the Prime Minister um, has uh, particularly has uh, championed. It's a, it's a sort of rather satisfactory fact that when there was last a coalition government in Britain in 1931 and Stanley Baldwin, a, a peacetime coalition, and Stanley Baldwin was the Prime Minister, he made a great speech and he inveighed against the extent of maternal mortality in Britain and vowed to do something about it. And within about 10 years, he'd reduced maternal mortality in Britain by 80% by the, principally by the, um, the introduction of the midwifery uh, service. So that is a very important uh, point of what we are seeking to drive into all our programs. And in every bilateral program we have, we will champion two key things. The first is the fight against malaria where we can make great strides in the next few years. It's absolutely outrageous that today 4,000 people in our world will die of malaria, a disease we absolutely have the power to prevent. And 75% of them will be children under five. If four kids died on the Isle of Wight tomorrow from malaria, it'd be a front page story, front of every television channel for weeks all over Europe. Um, and so that will be one pattern. The other pattern is the other thing you mentioned, which is uh, giving women choice over whether and when they have children. And we intend to drive forward that agenda vigorously, it is, again, it is outrageous that 76% of all women in sub-Saharan Africa have no access to contraception. Thank you. I promised Andrew, uh, and indeed the rest of you, that we would uh, wind up at 8 o'clock, which is uh, what it is. Thank you very much for coming. A very rich speech, and thanks to Paul also for his